Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 30 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Lawyerist now has a small but growing library of lawyering survival guides. We've got two so far. One is our updated guide to great law firm website design, and the other is our computer security guide, about which Andrew Cabasso of JurisPage says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get the guides at lawyerist.com guides, or you can just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the code PODCAST to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you should give it a try. Ruby will make you happy. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phone for free for two weeks, so you've got nothing to lose. Okay, Sam. So last week, uh, the American Lawyer magazine ran this really exciting and optimistic headline of legal industry makes modest job gains, citing uh, some Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics um, findings that there were 200 new law jobs across the nation this past month. Um, and I think it's total bullshit. Wait, is is 200 even statistically significant? How many lawyers I are there? I, I, I can't describe the precise methodology that the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics uses for its monthly reports, but it is all statistical extrapolation from surveys and um, payroll data, none of which is a precise headcount of everyone in the country. And it has to be the case that four law jobs per state is within some huge range of statistical noise. And there's just no way that this is a number that has any statistical meaning whatsoever. And even if it did, who cares about four jobs per state? Yeah, that seems uh, almost unremarkable, yet here we are remarking on it. I'm So I'm remarking <laughs> on the fact that it is statistical bullshit, not that there is any information one way or the other about whether there are job gains being had in the legal industry right now. Right. According to the ABA, there are 1.3 million lawyers in the country and so an extra 200 is not even remarkable correct so i don't want to remark on it anymore (laughs) i was just trying to calculate uh what percentage of a percent it was but there are too many zeros and after the decimal before you get a number so so today i'm talking about project management for lawyers which sounds like a dry subject but totally isn't so listen in to find out how to make a huge difference in your firm Hi, I'm John Grant. I uh, go by the name The Agile Attorney, and uh, I'm a practicing attorney. My practice is primarily in copyright and trademark law and a lot of small business, although I'm really only representing a handful of clients these days because most of my day is spent working with other lawyers and legal teams and law firms 
on things like legal operations. Um, I help with legal project management, legal process improvement, uh, product design, pricing, and I use a handful of tools that uh, have become pretty common in the business world, like Agile and Lean and Lean Startup, but most lawyers have never heard of them. Well, and so what we're, that's what we're going to talk about today then is project management. And I think it sounds like what you do is you encourage and help lawyers to stop and look at how they deliver legal services and advice when most lawyers don't ever stop to think about how they do it, they just do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, you, you focus know, on process and and systems, right? And sometimes going even deeper than that, you know, I think a, a lot of lawyers have, um, you know, no real or not a lot of real business training, and and you know, sometimes you'll get a course in in law school about how to read a balance sheet. But that's really only a small part of it. And I think having a, a better sense of, you know, what is your business model? Who are your ideal clients? Um, I spend a lot of time early on with new clients doing work about mission, vision, and values to sort of get that high-level sense of, you know, what do you want out of your practice? Um, who do you want to represent? What really, uh, you know, makes it tick for you um, so that you can really spend your time doing the things that you want to do? Well, that's awesome. And I'm super excited to talk about this because I love this part of law practice. I love figuring out ways to deliver more consistent legal services. I love ways to be more efficient. And this is just a huge part of that. And, you know, I think I always hear about people talking about there's only so much inefficiency you can cut, but there's just a staggering amount. And changing the way that we actually manage the work that we do is a huge piece of it. So, Maybe we should start with some definitions, because I think the concept of project management, while many lawyers may have heard it, I don't think it's something they really know what it is. So what is it? Well, you know, I mean, really, at the end of the day, almost everything you do is a project. I mean, a legal matter is a project, a, a um, you know, contract you're reviewing for a client or drafting. Um, litigation is a complex project that has very definable um parts to it. So, I, you know, for me, having come, you know, law's a second career for me, and I had sort of a, a, a business and project management background before I went to law school. So it's kind of funny for me, I've always thought of law as a project. Um, and so I've had to learn as I've practiced and, and worked with other lawyers that that's not necessarily the way that the rest of, of the industry thinks. Well, and lawyers want to lawyerize everything, right? We need, it, we won't buy software unless it has four lawyers after the after the name of it. Um, and so, you know, I, I see um, this concept of legal project management. And I'm wondering, is, is there anything actually specific and different and interesting about the fact that we're doing project management for lawyers? Or is it really the same kinds of project management just ported over? Oh, you know, I, I think that when you get to the advanced stages, there might be some nuance for the legal industry, just like there would be in any industry. But the fundamentals are the fundamentals. And, and you know, these project management techniques, whether you're talking about you know, the, the older technique, which is waterfall, which is, um, you know, u useful on occasion, but not necessarily what uh, I advocate, um, or the newer techniques like Agile, um, Scrum, Kanban, things like that, that um, are really being used by the software industry and the technology industry. The, the fundamentals are rooted in really sound sort of team dynamics and uh, behavioral science and um, 
just, you know, decades and decades of experience, if nothing else. Well, let's skip over the old models because my sense is that nobody really, well, many companies that use them are, are going away from them and they probably aren't particularly well suited to law anyway, where we've got especially small teams and uh, that don't necessarily play well together traditionally. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so like, so you mentioned, you threw out a couple of buzzwords that I think are where we're going to be talking about it, but um, and agile is the big one, right? You got every software company on the planet is talking about how it's an agile. They all have agile in their names <laughs> now, and they're so. What is agile? Yeah, so agile um, is a discipline that, at least nominally, is only about fourteen years old. So there, there actually is an agile manifesto. You can go to agilemanifesto.org, uh, and it was a bunch of software developers that got together uh, at some ski resort. I can't remember which one, and decided. That you know, there has to be a better way of delivering software, and and they came up with these. Um, uh, I can't even remember how many they are, but set set of principles that um, people should live by, and it's good. I encourage people to go uh, check it out. It's a pretty hokey website. It looks like it's about fourteen years old, but the. <laughs> um, you know the 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 words in there are true, and the only real downfall from my perspective is that it uses the words programming and software too much, and and really the the principles they talk about are totally applicable to almost any industry, if not every industry. Um, it, it just was they happen to be programmers when they wrote the thing, mm-hmm. so. Um, but Agile, you know, it's it's not like it was brand new and, and formed from whole cloth in 2001. The, the people that came up with the manifesto and developed these other um, practices like Scrum, um, like Kanban, they really were drawing mostly from Lean, right? And, and uh, digging deep and without getting too far into the family tree, um, Lean comes from Toyota manufacturing, um, you know, starting as early as the 50s and 60s. It sort of caught the, the manufacturing and the business world's attention probably in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it, it's a, a methodology that has to do with um, improving the value of your product delivery and eliminating activities that don't um, clearly add value to the actual customer facing product. So, you know, and you, you mentioned efficiency earlier, and it's, it's one of the things that I can um, get into to little micro arguments with people about. I, I tend to say that efficiency by itself is a terrible goal. And in lean, what the, the purpose of efficiency is, is to eliminate waste. And waste is defined as non-value added activity. So you gain efficiency by virtue of having a clearer sense of what your customer wants and how to deliver that. You don't cut efficiency for, you don't create efficiencies for efficiency's sake. Right. So I can imagine a client saying, we'll never have two attorneys billing at the same time. Well, that might be efficient and it might be cheaper, but you might actually need to bounce ideas off each other. And so that could be a problem. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, what, what's your path to a high quality product? Uh, you know, and there's funny, there's um, my old law partner and I used to engage in a practice that we later came to realize uh, in the software world is called paired programming. And we would literally have our uh, motions or our pleadings or whatever we were working on. We sat uh, facing each other with our stand-up desks. We're very uh, nouveau. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon, after all. Um, 
but uh, we both would be in the same Google Doc at the same time, basically watching each other draft and sort of playing off each other. And we created very high quality product much more quickly than we would have if we'd gone through sort of a serial, okay, you're going to do the first draft and then you're going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to review it type of thing. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I um, I took this a similar practice from another attorney in my office, which was I always drafted complaints with my clients in the room and the same for discovery responses and things like that. Um, if it was something I needed their input on, I wanted them there. And I also wanted to make sure that if we were at a deposition, because, you know, the opposing attorney always holds up the complaint and says, do you recognize this document? And your clients always say no if they don't do that because they don't recognize that they didn't really have a part in it. Right. And I wanted my clients to say yes. But also, it was the kind of thing where when any factual things came up, I didn't have to make them up and go back to them later. They, it wasn't like working with your partner where um, where you guys are actually um, contributing your legal know-how to it. But I was contributing the legal know-how and my clients were contributing the facts and things. And it, and it came together really well and it made it really efficient. We would sit down for an hour, hour and a half, and we'd bang out a complaint and it'd be done. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and you know, I mean that that is an inherently agile practice, and it, you know I I like that from a couple of standpoints. I mean, number one, like you said, the the quality is very high from the get go, right? You're sitting there with the source of information, getting it right the first time. You don't have to go back and edit. Uh, the other thing that it does, and this is one of the things you, when you're getting back to project management. Um, and, and the literature and the research, and if you go you know, do MBA or business school, is all very clear that the biggest source of uh, delay in any project isn't the amount of working time, it's the amount of waiting time. And so oh, of course. if you had to go back and forth with your client asking questions and then maybe clarifying questions and doing it via email or even over a series of phone calls – not only the amount of time that you have to wait in between, but then there's all this new brain science about the switching costs of multitasking. And, you know, it takes time for your brain to sort of ramp back up and get into, oh, this is the pleading that I'm working on. And remember the things that you've already written and, and sort of get back into that mode. And, and the switching costs are astounding. And if you, if you Google around on switching costs or the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the harms of multitasking, there's all sorts of scientific research on it now that says it's just terrible. So we've been talking about Agile in kind of vague terms, but can you give me an example of how a legal team might employ Agile on on a legal matter? Yeah, so one of the hallmarks, and I think really it, for, for the projects and the attorneys that I've worked with, the most powerful initial aspect of an Agile approach is the use of visual project management. And by that, I mean uh, you take representations of your tasks, um, the, the work that you have to do, and you literally put them on a sticky note or on an index card and stick them up on the wall. Oh, is this the, is this the to-do doing done? Yeah, so that's, that's, oh, that's, a, that. that's a most, the, the most basic form of what's called a Kanban board, or mm-hmm. uh, for people in the Midwest, a Kanban board. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank either you. one is fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so basically the idea is to take the, the work that is currently in your head, in your inbox, in your practice management system, whatever it might be, and you physically put it on the wall. And a few things happen when, when you do that. And I, it's my, my approach when I'm working with a new client, I kind of sneak it in on them sometimes, is I basically say, tell me what you're working on and I'll write a little sticky and throw it up there. 
um, and then tell me what else you're working on. And eventually, once you've got um, all of the, you know, it's it's pretty common to do it at the matter level at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've got all the matters that you're working on in the wall, the fact that you can see it um, up in front of you really changes your perception of the work that you have on your plate. And then you know, going one step further, you can also use different columns on the wall to represent different stages of your most common workflows. So if it's litigation, you might have a separate column for pleading um, and you know, maybe pre-answer motions, and then you have another column for the uh, initial conference and another column for discovery, however you want to break it up. But then you can put the individual matters up on the wall in that stage. And you can break it up into separate boards or you can subdivide it, you know, according to how, however it makes sense to organize it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. You can use different, uh, they call them swim lanes, but you know, hor- horizontal rows um, mm-hmm. to represent different types of matters that you might work on. But what, what that does is allows you, um, and, and this to me is one of the great sort of magical things about an agile approach, is it allows you to to take lean concepts, right? And, and lean comes from manufacturing, which is an inherently physical and tangible world. So a lot of the tools and techniques that they use are sort of rooted in the assumption that you can see what's going on. And with knowledge work, that's really difficult. But a, a Kanban board or a card wall allows you to have this physical, visual manifestation of your knowledge work. And once you can see it, um, it's interesting. You don't even really have to know any lean techniques. Your brain automatically starts to behave differently. You know, it's interesting. So Aaron and I, um, Aaron being my my co-owner here at Lawyerist, um, Aaron and I uh, just saw Kanban boards at Total Attorneys uh, on a tour, and uh, it, it it immediately made intuitive sense to us how how to do it and how this would work. And so for our next few projects at Lawyerist, we we did this, and there's something really powerful. And, you know, we had, I think Aaron was, you know, Aaron had blue stickies and I had pink stickies or something like that. But it, there was something really powerful in walking over to the wall and pulling something out of the doing pile and slapping it on the, on the uh, done pile. Um, it, it was just, a, it was really, it was fun and it was... Uh, it really motivated us to plow through this really big project that we had, and I could totally see that being an effective way to deal with summary judgment or or an entire matter, if uh, or a merger and acquisition is have a giant board and um, you know once a once a week or so you touch base on it and you just people flow through that room and slaps stickies down in the done pile all day and it's just or in the done column all day and it's really satisfying it it is and it's you know there's there's a little bit of brain science around that too you know, you you get a little dopamine squirt when you oh, when yeah. you move it over to the done column and it does it becomes almost addictive um and then other attorneys i've worked with sometimes i'll i'll uh, take a little square sticky note turn it into a diamond and put a dollar sign on it and put that right before the done column, and it becomes a little game theory uh, mm. play as well, where you know you realize two two things: number one, you're not done until you get paid; uh, and number mm-hmm. two, you have a payoff line, right? You you score points in the form of actual you know cold cash when you move things across in, into the done column. No, that makes a lot of sense, and yeah, uh, you know if if people 
for some reason don't want to do it with post-its or you have remote work, um, Trello is built around this concept, really. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of great tools. And Trello is, is far and away, I think, the most common and probably the easiest to adapt uh, or to adopt. It is limited in some of the things you can do. And and I also, and you know, the, I've got blog posts on this and I tell almost anyone who will listen, I really advocate starting with a physical board first because mm-hmm. there's something about being able to, to experience that uh, shift in perception, right? And, and without getting too wonky, there's the, um, the Daniel Kahneman book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he talks about two different states of sort of mental work and, and the, the stage one is the more visual, um, uh, automatic responsive state. And then stage two is the more analytic state. And, and the analytic state takes a lot of work. The visual responsive state is relatively intuitive. And, and part of what you do when you put things up on the wall, uh, is you allow yourself to engage in system one thinking, the more intuitive, uh, easier way to sort of perceive your work. And, and I feel like, uh, and people have told me that a physical wall, you know, just uh, is so much better in terms of the size and scope and tangibility, uh, t- uh, uh, t- yeah, tangibility of um, the work itself versus, you know, maybe a, a 11 or 12 inch laptop screen or even a 20 inch monitor. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, we're all remote now, so we don't really have that option. But um, but if we did, I, I think the physical wall is totally the way to go. So uh, so what what besides the Kanban board? Well, so one of the things you said a minute ago, and actually, I, I, you know, I'll challenge it a little bit, but one of the uh, hallmarks of an agile practice is lots of frequent check-ins and frequent um, adjustments to course. And so you said you could see putting a project up on the board and then maybe checking in once a week. Ideally, that would be once a day. And so it, in a high-functioning, well-functioning Agile team, uh, they almost all are using something called the daily stand-up. And I think you know, a, lot, a lot of people have maybe heard of that concept, um, but the, the Agile stand-up, or more specifically, the, the stand-up that comes from Scrum, is a very specific tool. And you know, a, a lot of people, when they go to implement stand-up meetings, they wind up sort of just replicating their regular check-in meetings. And that's not what you're supposed to do. Ideally, you'd go around the room with your team, and, and you can even sort of do this with yourself if you're a solo. Um, it's harder because having the accountability is helpful. Mm-hmm. But you basically ask everyone or everyone in the room or on the team answers three questions. What did you do yesterday to move the project forward? What do you hope to accomplish today to move the project forward? And what's standing in your way? Hmm. And it's limited to those three things. And the, the rough rule of thumb is that a stand-up meeting should be no longer than the number of people on the team times two minutes. Which is another reason that it is actually a standing-up meeting. You got it. And okay. so the, the point of that meeting isn't to do work. The point of that meeting is to check in about the state of the work. And by keeping it short and having these frequent check-ins and, and interactions – a few things happen, right? Number one is that everyone's accountable to the team for what they just stood up and said they were trying to do today to move the project forward. And they know that they're going to have to stand up tomorrow and say what I did in the last 24 hours. So, And if you didn't do anything, you're going to stand out. You are absolutely going to stand out. So that accountability uh, is is very powerful. But number two is when the bottlenecks come up, and when you talk about what, what your roadblocks are, uh, people on the team come forward and, and help you. 
And, you know, the, the whole point, and, and a lot of this is about making the discussion about the work and not the worker, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I said, what did you do today or what did I do yesterday to move the project forward? Not what did I do yesterday, right? right. <laughs> that, that, that's a whole different thing. This isn't a personal check-in. This is about getting things done. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, so you need a board and you need a daily stand-up. A daily stand-up. And that's really, you know, there, there really are, and again, this is specifically coming from the, the agile discipline known as Scrum, which uh, by itself has lots of different flavors. So, you know, there's, there's not a lot of hard and fast rules. And I think, you know, at the core, agile, a lot like lean, is a philosophy, not, um, you know, not a set of doctrines. Um, right. It, it, it is flexible. But there are these uh, different techniques and, and disciplines that have proven effective. So they they um, have earned at least some fidelity. And I mean, so, what, un- what's the what's the resolution like? What uh, resolution um, maybe is about? You know, how, how how granular do you get with your different boards and your different standups? Because you know, many lawyers are juggling thirty matters or or more or or some a few less. Um, you could be spending half of every day doing stand-ups if you've got a separate project board for each one of those. Yeah. So you know, one one of the things that I talk about is is premature complexification. Right? <laughs> I like that. So the best possible thing to do is start simple. And you know, in terms of a board, I usually start people with a to-do doing done. Now, I will usually pretty quickly break that out into some other columns. I, I like to go to the left of to-do. I'll talk about backlog items, right? And, and sometimes I think of that as sort of your brain dump hmm. um, so that as you're working on one task and some other thing occurs to you uh, and you don't want to get interrupted, you just throw it on a sticky, drop it into the backlog or the brain dump column and then get back to what you were working on. Or is that also the sort of the parking lot? Or yeah, exactly. Par- parking lot is another one. And then from the parking lot, you would periodically um, the, the agile folks call it grooming the backlog, and you sort of do two things: you prioritize within the backlog, but then also you might move things out of the backlog into a queue uh, to say these are things that I'm actually going to commit to. Right? Not only did I have the idea, but I've vetted it to some extent, and I think it's a good idea. I'm going to carry forward with it. And then moving into to do, um, and so on. And then the other thing, the other place where I'll break it out is in the doing column, right? And the doing column can expand to accommodate different workflow stages, like I said. Um, you know, in terms of the complexity, even a lawyer that is working, and, and in fact, especially lawyers that are working on, say, 30 different matters. Um, at, in any given month, they're not actively working on all of those matters every day. And one of the things that I've heard back and, and have experienced myself with using this visual project management is you, in your daily standup, you talk about what are you going to do today to those matters that need your attention today. I see. Right? And so lots of them may be in a waiting state or they may be in an inactive state, right? And so your stand-up on any given day isn't going to cover all 30 matters. Again, this isn't sort of a total practice check-in on a daily basis. This is planning for the day. Gotcha. And, uh, and w- during the stand-up, is there, is, is there an opportunity to give input on other people's priorities? Like if I say I'm going to be doing this today, um, is, it, 
is it acceptable for somebody else to say, I think you actually would be better off working on this? Or is this meant to be pretty flat and everybody decides for themselves? So I, ideally it would be flat. And so that's another one of the hallmarks of an agile organization is that they tend to be very flat and very, um, the, the, the agile manifesto talks about self-organizing teams. And of course, in order to have a good flat organization with self-organizing teams, everybody has to know what the purpose of the project is and what are the goals you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, a lot of it is, has to do with, um, sort of giving, empowering people to make the right decisions to move the project forward. So there certainly is room for debate and discussion about that. Gotcha. Um, um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so So besides the, so we've got the stand-up, what's, uh, what else do we have to keep track of or, or do? Well, so there, it's, it's good whether you're using Scrum or Kanban or others. I, I, I like to have a periodic planning meeting, right? And it could be every week, it could be every month. Um, or somewhere in between, where you sit down and say, okay, for our practice, for, for this firm or for this team, our most important goals over the next X period until we do our next planning meeting are these. And so that's what helps guide the discussion on the daily basis about what are you going to work on? How are you going to move it forward? Because we know what the goals are over that period of time. And, and ideally, someone would write them out and put them on the wall, right, right up above the board so that uh, it's clear, you know, the, the software teams talk about a Kanban board as an information radiator. And the idea is that you should be able to, uh, you know, everyone should be able to have access to the most important, you know, sometimes high level, but um, strategic information about the project at a glance. Um, and, and what about deliverables? I know that's big in the software world. Yeah, well, and so the next meeting, um, at, you know, the, the first meeting would be the planning. The next would be the series of daily standups. The, the next meeting would be a review. So during, again, whatever period of time you choose, say two weeks, if you have a review meeting every two weeks, it's basically a check-in and it can be, you know, it's longer than a standup, obviously, but it can often be shorter than an hour where you say, okay, what did we do to move the needle? Here were our goals. Here's what we actually accomplished. Where's the gap? Right? And, and again, having that be part of your, your cadence and your ritual as a team helps foster the accountability because you know that review meeting's coming and it sort of forces people to be engaged with the project on a daily basis in order to hit the goals for that review. So we're really thinking of the, the project or the, the overall thing as the success of the practice, not getting this motion out the door, right? We're not going to have an individual board and an in, and separate stand-ups for each motion that we're working on. No, I think that's too granular at first. I mean, I, for, for really complex projects, but that's, um, you know, ideally you'd be at the point or you'd have a team around you that is knowledgeable enough about, the basics of, um, you know, what constitutes emotion or not, that that's, um, should be clear to the team. Now I will say there, there are different ways. So for example, if, um, uh, you know, on your Kanban board, you have a separate stage for summary judgment, um, you might as part of that column have a, uh, what the software people will call, or you know, any agile people will call a definition of done. So what are the 
things that must be true in order for you to say, great, I have now accomplished a good summary judgment motion and I'm ready to submit it to the court. So, okay, so I, I'm starting to get a better picture of this. So let's say my team is a personal injury team. And mm-hmm. our goal is to move all of our cases to resolution. Correct. And so we might have columns for, um, for intake um, and investigation. We might have columns for um, you know, initial communications with an insurer. We may have columns for discovery. We may have a column for summary judgment. And then we may have a column for um, settled, or, settled or, or won or lost. Right. That's exactly right. And then, and then let's say we get that giant case, you know, a train derails and runs into <laughs> a warehouse or something like that. We, we may still represent that on our primary board with a post-it note, but they, it may have its own board somewhere. It may be big enough that it needs to have its own board. A- absolutely. Yep. That's, that's a, a great example. And so that, that is um, exactly how I would set it up, in fact. Um, you know, I, I think for the most part, m- most legal matters are sort of mundane enough. Um, and, you know, unless you're the kind of firm that is, uh, you know, doing toxic torts and everything is a huge case. Yeah. But, um, but each know, matter may, may just be one post-it note. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it may be a post-it note. I, I sometimes will do, you know, I think decomposing tasks is really helpful and important, right? You want to break work down into manageable chunks. And so sometimes I'll use color coding and a, a matter might get, you know, maybe a four by six post-it note, and then any subtasks related to that matter might move through a little mini sort of to-do, doing, done column, hmm. um, and those those subtasks would get the same color post-it as the big matter, right? Or you sometimes know, you can use a code, you know, give some physical icon. I mean, I've seen people use stickers and stars and any number of things to sort of identify like tasks. So, so let, let me back up now. I... Have we got a pretty good picture of what Agile is and how it works in a law practice now, or is there more you want to add before I start asking wonky yeah, questions? Yeah, you know, there's one more piece to it, and I think you you started to get toward that, right? So talking about the personal injury practice that you just, uh, you know, hypothesized, um, one of the things that you can see once you have this Kanban system up is you will be able to tell where your work is getting stuck. Right, because you now have this visual representation, and you know if there are a lot of matters that are in investigation or a lot of matters that are in any you know, whatever the state may be, um, that'll jump out at you. Right, this is one of those intuitive things that happen, and then you can assess: Do I have a problem here or not? And so, you know, one of the things that I try to get people to do, and and it's not necessarily important right out of the shoot, but it's a good sort of level two practice is keep track of how much time your matters is spending in each state. Mm-hmm. And once you start to have that data, then you can use it to, number one, drive your behavior and try to make improvements. But number two, and this is where some of the lean startup philosophy comes in, uh, you can run experiments to see whether you've moved the needle. So rather and than say... This could be as simple as you just put the date on the post-it note when you create it and you put the date that it ends up in the done column. No more complicated than that at first. Right. Yeah. And then if you want to track it at each individual stage of your workflow, that's helpful, right? But it's it's a level of complexification. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my whole thing is don't add complexity until you can justify the complexity that you're adding. I think I've gradually learned that over the years. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I tend to go right for complexity from the get-go. Yeah, well, and I think lawyers do. I mean, it's it's something we love to drill down and really try to, like, you know, peel everything back and understand at a detailed level. And, and you know, this gets into one of the other things that comes into play and, and one of the other philosophies that I'm a really big fan of uh, is called the theory of constraints. Mm-hmm. And the theory of constraints tells us that in any workflow, there is typically only one, occasionally two uh, stages in your workflow that are constraining the throughput of your entire system. Hmm. And, you know, naturally that makes sense. In, a, in any sort of flow scenario, there's always going to be a choke point. But the corollaries to that are important. And, and these are really powerful for the lawyers that I've been working with. Uh, number one, if you can improve the flow of your work at the choke point, then you can improve the flow of your entire system. And that means handling more matters, making more money. The flip side of that, and this is the one that is, I think, powerful and it gets into some of the you know, eliminating wasteful activity, is that improving parts of your system that aren't the choke point won't help. Mm-hmm. So you have to really think about where am I constrained? Where am I, where's my bottleneck? And then when you want to go and work on your practice operations, back office, whatever, uh, you need to try to make sure that you're doing work at the bottleneck and trying to make improvements there. You know, time and again, I work with lawyers and they say, oh yeah, I keep doing uh, practice improvement and I've gotten really good at my client intake process because I always start on the far left of my processes. And I've improved my client intake process seven or eight times, but I've never gone further than that. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay, so the, so let me try and wrap up the um, what Agile is. And this is obviously probably enough to get people started, but not enough to get people feeling like they really have their heads around the whole thing. Yeah. But you need to have a planning meeting where you address things like what's in your backlog. You dump Post-it notes into the to-do column or, or whatever you're using or the intake column or whatever. Um that's where you, I think that's where you populate your your board. I think that's right. Yeah, the the, the number one. I mean, e- even if you don't necessarily do a planning meeting, I I think start with where you are. So just mm-hmm. take the work that you have and put it up there, uh, and then you know a- as you try to move it from left to right across your board, um, celebrate those things that you actually do get to done, um, but also recognize that. Um, you know, you need to be very clear about what you're doing. And, and one of the other concepts, and this comes out of, out of Lean, is the idea of a, a WIP limit or a work-in-process limit. And it basically it is a, an explicit recognition that multitasking is bad. And mm-hmm. so w- one of the things that I really try to encourage people to do is once you move something into the doing column, don't move it out until it's done. And sure. One of the you know sort of the unofficial slogan or motto of the Kanban methodology is start less to finish more. Right? Don't have too many different things in flight at any one time because your throughput will actually improve if you focus on doing the things that are in you know in the middle of your process and getting them done rather than trying to shove more work. You know, th- this is one of the other things that I keep hearing from lawyers I talk to is I I ask them usually where do you think your bottleneck is. 
And eight or nine times out of 10, they'll say, oh, it's marketing. I need to get more clients into my system. <laughs> but once we build out a board and, and start to show what their process actually looks like, that's almost never where, unless they're a new attorney, that's almost never where their bottleneck is. So have the planning meeting. That helps you get your board together. Your daily stand-ups help you keep the board moving and make everyone accountable for keeping the board moving. Uh, and then you have a periodic review to assess how well you're doing overall uh, compared to your objectives. Yep, that's that's right. And then the, the one other piece, and this is the fourth ritual of Scrum, is right after that review, you have a second uh, sort of planning meeting that's called the retrospective. And whereas the review is about the work and the project that you've been working on, the retrospective is about the process you're using to do the work. And so a retrospective also has sort of three prescribed questions. Um, the first one is, what's going well that we should keep doing? The second is, what's not working that we should stop doing? And the third is, what should we try that's different? And this is, you know, you often hear this as an after-action review. Um, people love to skip it, but this is where improvement happens. Right. Oh, that's great. And so, and then the other key is to take the answers to those questions, put them on a sheet of paper, and put them on your wall. So that in the next... Uh, cycle, whatever it happens to be, if somebody starts to drift into an old habit that was one of the things that we as a team agreed to stop doing, all anyone really needs to do is point to the sign. And the team will sort of self-correct that way. Um, you know, same thing with what are the things we should keep doing? What are the things we should try differently? Um, you know, it, it keeps everyone on board in a non-personal way because the team agreed to this. I really like that it, because it keeps some of the focus on process. That's which, right. After all, is you know the one one of the processes is is agile and it provides you the framework. But how you do things day to day, you got to keep the focus on that too. Yeah. That's so so here's something that we've struggled with for a long time, and I think um, people people have a hard time differentiating project management and personal time, personal task management. So, like, we've been through Basecamp and Teamwork and Trello and, uh, you know, and we're, we all love getting things done as well. Um, and we're all trying to figure out how to do getting things done in our project management software. And it never works and we end up never using it. And so, <laughs> so, so really, like, how do you, I mean, do you have to give up getting things done to do Agile? Or is that more about how you manage your personal time on moving those post-it notes from one to the next. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think GTD and Agile are highly complementary. Um, in fact, you know, I, I've got, I was sort of rereading because I knew you were a GTD uh, <laughs> fan. So I was flipping back through my book. And you know, one of the things that jumped out at me is the under the project management part of his book, he talks about the need for more informal planning, which is exactly what a stand-up meeting is. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the GTD, you know, a lot of times what I'll see is a team will manage a large-scale Kanban board, you know, in a conference room or a lot of times in the hallway because it's where there's space um, to manage the overall, you know, the goals of the firm or the matters that the firm is working on. Um, but then people will maintain a personal Kanban board in their offices um, or on their own Trello instance or whatever it might be. So as you come out of the daily stand-up, that then helps you come up with your own personal 
to do doing and done, you know, basically to do list. Right. Because um, our stuff is more granular than the big picture stuff that the firm is firm wide. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, you know, part of it is not everyone needs to know all of those granular details for all of the tasks that you, Sam, have or Aaron has or whoever. Um, you as a team want to check in on the big picture stuff. Is this thing moving forward? But then, you might have a personal Kanban or a personal Trello board or whatever that you would use a lot like you'd use your, your getting things done list, right? Mm-hmm. So you sort of, again, got a, um, a, a ready or a, a to-do uh, column that's got the things on it that you're hoping to accomplish today. Um, I know you and I emailed at one point about most important tasks. Yep. Um, that's another thing that can go really well in a Kanban, right? Those most important tasks go to the top of your to-do column, right? And, and we didn't talk about it before, but one of, the, one of the great things that teams use is relative vertical position to talk about priority or to, to, to show priority of tasks. And so um, when you're working in a backlog or when you're working in the to-do, right, the things that are most important go on top. And then when you come back to the column to pull another piece of work into the doing column, you pull from the top. That makes a lot of sense. And that way you're always making sure that those most important items or the highest value items are the ones that are coming across first. That's pretty helpful because I, I think the uh, it's important to keep that personal management separate. We've just uh, we've just struggled with figuring out the right way to do that over the years, but it does it makes sense to me to to just extend the system that you're using on the big wall to be the one that you use on your small wall as well or or something similar. Yeah, well, and it also allows you, right, when you come back into the, the team stand-up the next day, all you have to do is look at your done column before mm-hmm. you go into that meeting and you, you have a really good sense of what you're going to uh, commit to or what, what you've committed to and what you're going to commit to. John, what did I not ask you that you think I should have asked you? Boy, um, you know, I, I just want people to know how easy it is to get started. Um, I've, uh, I, I've got a, a half-written book uh, that I'm working on. You can actually buy it on LeanPub in true sort of lean startup minimum viable project or <laughs> viable product fashion. Oh, cool. um, but the first few chapters are on uh, my website, which is agileattorney.net. And, um, you know, definitely, uh, if you're interested at all, check them out. If you have any questions, I love to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, I, I can do it all day. And, well, and we just, will definitely include a link to your website. And um, it sounds to me like maybe the easiest thing for people to do to dip their toes in is to throw up a Kanban board and start using it and um, and then try and incorporate those meetings to fill it and to keep it going. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, it can go either way. I've, I've seen... Um, I've seen where people start using a personal Kanban and then other members of their team kind of come in and say, oh, what's that? Um, and start to buy in. And, and eventually that will lead to a team Kanban board coming, you know, or, or maybe a scrum methodology coming into play. Um, I've seen it where you start with the team board and then move to the personal. So it, it can work. You know, it, it, there's, there's sort of no strict rules about how to do it. Um, but once you get started, really with visual project management, um, most people don't want to stop. You know, one, one of the things I hear all the time is once I've seen my work this way, I can't unsee it. Yeah. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Well, John, thank you so much for talking to me today. I, you've inspired me and you've got my, my, the wheels turning in my head and, um, I love talking about this stuff and I really appreciate it and I hope we'll get a chance to do it again. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And, uh, let me know if you have any questions once you get your board rolling. 
This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you. And I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.